Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 241 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's episode is Standing in Truth, an interview with Peter Owen. My name is Debbie Nichols. And I'm Richard Johannesson. Thank you to Tick Bootcamp for welcoming me from Two Alpha Gals for this special crossover episode where we interview Peter Owen from TICNA, the tick-borne illness community of Australia, where he is swimming against the tide. It's always exciting to see what other countries are doing when it comes to tick-borne illness. We can see what a blessing our system is here in the U.S. when other countries actually deny the existence of Lyme disease. Despite this, Peter is standing his ground to take on this challenge and is trying to grow awareness and recruit others to help him. Hey, Peter Owen, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Very, very pleased to be here. And we're really pleased to have you as well. And, and I just want to share with our community that one of our good friends, Debbie Nichols, is going to be co-hosting with me. She's my special co-host. And, and I know Matt Sabatello is a little anxious that I have Debbie on today because he knows that this may mean the end of his uh, participation in Tick Bootcamp's podcast in the future if Debbie's too good. I may have to fire Matt. So, Peter, let's hope, uh, let's hope Debbie's good, but not that good. <laughs> so, so, Deb, you want to say hi to our folks? Sure. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for, for hearing me here with Rich and Peter today. I'm excited to be here. So, Peter, why don't you share with our listeners where you're calling in from? So, I'm calling in from uh, Melbourne, Australia. And, and um, talk to us about what uh, you do in Melbourne, Australia. Well, for many years, I've not been able to work, unfortunately. Um, but prior to that, I used to be a photographer. And then prior to that, I used to be a geologist. And uh, how long have you lived in Australia? Uh, all my life, all my life, although various parts of Australia. So I was born in, in Wagga in uh, New South Wales, which is a big country town. Um, and after my parents retired, we moved up to Caloundra in uh, Sunshine Coast. Uh, which is a big tick area now that I know. Um, and then from there, went to university up in Toowoomba, and in, which is also in Queensland. Um, then moved back down to uh, South Australia, where I was a geologist there. And then from there, moved to, um, well, I was a geologist only for about three years. Unfortunately, I got retrenched through a recession. So <laughs> I ended up trying to find a job for, for about, 12 months and couldn't get one so I went back and I, I studied photography then because I found photography was a wonderful hobby of mine so I couldn't find a career back in, as a geologist so I went back and studied photography again moved back to Queensland in Brisbane studied that and then from there I moved back down to Melbourne so I've been around a, a lot. So talk to us about what your childhood was like and what kinds of things you did during that childhood to um, become a geologist. Um, yeah, I guess it's interesting that, that I became a geologist. I mean, I, I didn't know, really know what, what to do when I was um, in, in school. And, and I was always a science nerd, loved science, loved um, sort of questioning everything. So, so that got me out of the science sort of path. So it was biology and chemistry and all of that. And you get this guidance counsellor at school that sort of says, well, what can you do in your, in your life? And they said, well, you'd be no good with people. So forget people sort of things. And I thought, oh, well, thanks very much for that. Um, so I followed, followed science. I started doing um, university with, with engineering. So my first sort of year in, in, in university was doing engineering, but I didn't really like it. wasn't really good at that. 
I remember as a kid, I was collecting rocks. <laughs> so a bit of a rockhead, I suppose, interested in the way the earth worked and, and the world worked that way. So uh, I decided to take my hobby again into career. And so I, I ended up switching to, to geology. And like anything I do, I just put my heart and soul into it. And I'm not smart, but I know that you need to study things. So I did quite well at that. And then I got a job with um, a big mining company as an exploration geologist. I got to saw quite a bit of Australia and loved the bush in Australia. Just loved, you know, travelling around and, and seeing a lot of Australia. And I picked up, again, another hobby of photography. So I did a lot of landscape photography as well when I was out in the bush in between, you know, logging core samples and stuff like that as well. So, so Peter, we're going to have to define some terms here because as North Americans, we, we don't have something called the bush. So why don't you <laughs> describe for us what the bush is and, and, and then I want to talk to you a little bit more about uh, some of the dangers associated with being in the bush. Yeah, I guess the bush is sort of like the outback of, of Australia. It could be anything from rainforests to, to, to wide open spaces. I don't know what you call that in America. What do you call it in America? Um, perhaps a forest or the woods or, you know, some, yeah. some you know. Forest and woods, but it's also a lot of nothing, a lot of, um, you know, big open spaces of sand dunes and pretty much a desert as well. So it can be anything. But usually it's kind of like, I guess, a forest, I suppose, with that. So anytime you're out in rural spaces, there are always dangers uh, that you have to prepare yourself for. There could be wild animals, there could be all kinds of dangers. So what kind of risks do folks who were growing up where you grew up uh, face when they're, uh, when they're going out to the bush? I guess Australia's, you know, really well known for, for its dangerous animals, you know, snakes and, you know, you go swimming, there's sharks and there's jellyfish and, and going through waters, there's crocodiles and so forth. And, and I was thinking about this, it's interesting that when you're sort of a geologist, um, you were giving safety programs and you were taught about, um, you know, if you had an accident, you have taught about first aid, four-wheel driving, you know, how to not roll your vehicle over as a four-wheel driver. But we were never taught about the little creatures. We're talking about snakes, for sure, how to handle snakes and so forth. And I certainly come across quite a few of them in the bush. Um, but never about, certainly, ticks at all. Knew nothing. Never taught about it. So now, Peter, you, you said that you were a science geek as a child and you always had a passion and an aptitude for science. So I'm assuming during the course of the time that you were pursuing the various scientific um, interests that you had, that you probably came across, um, you know, information about ticks and other types of vectors. Do you know anything about ticks uh, uh, during your childhood or during your university studies? No, never. Never come across it. It's not a, and even still today, it's not a big, big sort of thing that's discussed or, or known about any vector. You know, it's, we only sort of cover mosquitoes, I guess, a little bit. You know, we have infections like Ross River virus and Barma forest virus and so forth, but but never about ticks. It's it's not a big thing. We're very backward in that. So, as a scientist, uh, I want you to put your scientist hat back on for a minute. Uh, I, I think that one of the reasons why we as humans are, are very good at, at, at identifying large threats is because we're visual beings, right? We see something, it's big. We figure out how to protect ourselves from it, in most cases by killing it or caging it, right? But the, but the microscopic things, the smaller things, because we can't see them, we generally do not see them as or feel that there is serious a risk as, um, 
as some of the bigger um, uh, threats that we come uh, in contact with nature. What, what are your thoughts about that as a scientist? Oh, absolutely. You know, and that, that's the thing. I mean, you can see a crocodile. You can generally see a shark on that. And certainly they're patrolled at beaches. Uh, there's warning signs everywhere about, um, you know, don't swim here for crocodiles. Um, this is jellyfish season. So there's plenty of warnings about the big things. You're absolutely right that, that we take little notice of the little things in life. But then, as we know, it's the little things that life can often get you. I mean, we, we rarely get stepped on by an elephant, you know, but it's, it's, it's the mosquitoes that will get you. And it's the same with these things. I think that, that vectors in general are very grossly um, unrecognised as being potentially dangerous. And if you consider this, inside that, especially a Borrelia, you know, which is, which is the Lyme bacteria, it looks just like a snake. And if you have that analogy that, you know, if you consider that these big snakes, which you can see, you've got to consider that these little, you know, ticks are full of these little Borrelia, which are just snakes. So consider that being pretty dangerous. But they're, but they're little snakes or they, they're invisible snakes, right? And because yeah. we are largely visual um, beings and we can't see these little microscopic snakes, uh, we don't take them as seriously as perhaps we should. Yeah, I think when I was studying geology, we had to uh, do thin sections of rocks. We'd have to get rocks and then we'd have to cut them up ourselves and then put them under a microscope. And part of our exam was actually, we were given thin sections of rocks and we would had to determine what the rock was just from the microscopy. So it's interesting that microscopy is not used today as much as it used to be. I mean, there's still some things that are used in, in like they still check for malaria by using microscopy. But they don't do that now. They get blood and they just mush it up and they don't actually look inside ticks. But there are some, certainly people and they don't look inside blood of people and determine, you know, what are the pathogens in that. I think it's a lost art, a lost science that we should bring back. And, and that's, I guess, as scientists, you need to know what you're trying to treat. So you need to determine, determine those things. So, Peter, did you ever meet anyone before you started to show the symptoms of what you now know to be your, your tick disease. Did you ever know anyone who suffered from any form of a tick disease? None whatsoever. No, never come across it. I, I guess the area that I also live in now in Melbourne, we're not in a tick endemic area. Um, it's only now that I knew that I grew up in a tick endemic area um, in, in Caloundra in the Sunshine Coast. Um, and also, I guess, potentially could have been bitten, um, but had no recollection of a bite when I was a geologist because you used to sleep out in the bush all the time and sleep under the stars, uh, which was just a wonderful experience, by the way. Well, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, Peter. Let's talk about that. <laughs> so what, what was it like when you were sleeping out in the bush? Uh, you know, what, were you sleeping in a tent? Were you sleeping in a sleeping bag? Or were you just um, laying out in the ground? What, what was it like to, uh, to sleep out there when you were working as, uh, uh, as a geologist? Well, I guess it was like permanent camping. You, you would spend two to three weeks out, work seven days a week, and then you'd come back for a week off or 10 days off or something like that. Um, that was kind of the life. And, it, and as a single guy, it was pretty pretty great I must admit you'd have everything paid for like you know and it would vary from you know having on a, on a sort of a drilling operation you'd, you'd be out there in caravans so you'd have your own caravan uh, to sometimes in exploration you might be dropped off by a helicopter up the top of a ridge and then you'd walk your way down streams and so forth and, and collect samples and then at the end of the day you might end up in a tent 
Um, sometimes it was too hot. You'd, you'd take a stretcher out and you'd sleep outside. Just You, you would have a mosquito net with you. You, you definitely have that. Um, but no, nothing about putting protection on for, 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 um, for ticks or anything like that. The other thing you did, if it was really, really hot, I'd be wearing overalls because it would be terrible for sunburn in Australia. So you, you, you protect yourself against the sun for sure, uh, but nothing else in regards to, to putting on insect spray for anything else. Uh, you'd certainly wear protective clothing for snakes. I, I, even on a hot day, I, you'd have gaiters on, which are special sort of things down below that's to protect your socks and protect the lower parts because that's where the snakes would get. So you'd have protection that way, but never protection for, for ticks and just never came across that. So, Peter, when was the first time you were aware that ticks existed? I only really when I considered that I possibly had some kind of tick-borne disease, mostly, you know, could I have Lyme disease? Because that was the main thing that was, you know, known in Australia, you know, could people have Lyme disease and so forth. It was never considered could I have picked it up overseas? And that in, ended up being my case anyway. So um, do you believe that you came in contact with Lyme disease in Australia or do you believe that you traveled abroad and you came in contact with Lyme disease abroad? I think in my case, it's, it's a strong probability that it was overseas. I mean, uh, it's not officially recognized in Australia as far as that particular species of Borrelia is concerned. That's, that's the big issue with, um, I guess the rest of the world. I mean, there's Lyme disease known in many, many countries, especially America and especially the UK, et cetera, and Europe. Um, but in Australia, that particular species, but we've definitely got Borrelia without a shadow of a doubt. It's been found here. It's found in the ticks. Recent reports have just indicated Borrelia species, as well as a stack of other um, pathogens, viruses, bacterias um, that are, that are also unique to Australia. I mean, we are girt by sea. We mean, we're a big, big island. Um, and so we have our own species, but we, we have rickettsia, which is, which is huge uh, in Australia and very similar to, to sort of more or less Africa. Because if you look at where the geology, I guess, of, of the world with Gondwana land, where we're all sort of joined together, um, Australia fits into where Africa was. So it could be interesting how Australia's got more rickettsias, and then so does, so does Africa has more rickettsias than other things. So you know, it could be through generations that way. So just by way of, again, focusing on the ticks for another minute, you, you are just not aware of ticks as vectors of disease, including rickettsia, until you began to get sick. Correct. In fact, my first diagnosis for 10 years was uh, fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome. So it was took. I've been sick now for, for nine, nearly 19 years. And uh, it wasn't until 2012, and I've been sick since 2003, that, that I first started to look into to Lyme disease, I guess, first off. So let's walk back to now your early symptoms. When did you first start to feel symptoms that now looking back, you've identified as the symptoms of your tick disease? Um. My whole, I guess my illness really was triggered by a badly broken leg um, in 2003. So that was, that was the trigger for, my, for myself. Um, I ended up um, 
sort of falling down the stairs at home. So it wasn't very exciting. I couldn't say, I got this skiing or anything outrageous. It was carrying a washing basket down the stairs at home with my beautiful, you know, at the time, 80-month-old daughter. I was holding her hand in one hand and my washing basket in the other hand. I was walking down the stairs and I just felt my legs go. So I, I gently pushed her out of the way and threw the washing basket, but then I fell on my leg and I knew that I broke it straight away. I broke it in three places. It was just horrible sound. Uh, my daughter learned her first swear word, uh, which was quite interesting. I said to her, "No, Daddy said duck." So you know, <laughs> so that's that's what I sort of had to say afterwards. And I just managed to sort of get myself back up the stairs onto the landing. Uh, I called out to my wife. I said, "You know, I've broken my leg. I knew it straight away." Um, and so you know, called the ambulance in. Um, Lucky they had those little, you know, things that you suck on to sort of get rid of the pain instantly. Um, but I knew that I just, you know, with the medical system, when something like that happens, you can put yourself in, in, in full trust in the medical system in, in acute situations like that. There's nothing you can do. You just go with it. Um, and, and I just look, people break bones all the time, but they recover from it in most cases. And that's what I considered myself. It was a, it was a long recovery, about five months. I was off work. Um, and I just had to go through that. But through the recovery, I was getting panic attacks through that, which, you know, I guess when I was in the hospital, they told me to sort of shut up and sleep and stop carrying on and so forth. So that was could have been a first indication of it. Um, I went back to work. This happened in April, and by October I was back at work photographing weddings, uh, which I absolutely love doing. And um, But by Christmas of that year, um, I was just not feeling right. I, I work with a photographic assistant uh, like yourself do with Matt there. And then you go out on a, on a photography, you know, photographing a wedding and you, you know where you're going beforehand. And I was getting lost. Uh, I was just, you know, I was heading off in the completely wrong direction. And I wasn't aware of it until my assistant said, you know, where are you going? I said, you're going in the total wrong direction. I said, really? So, so, so yeah, yeah. let me ask you to pause there for a second because I do want to explore brain fog and some of the neurological symptoms. Yeah. But I want to walk back to the injury that you suffered when you made the mistake of trying to multitask as a man and you <laughs> fell down the stairs and you broke your leg, right? Um, that, of course, is, is what we call an immune disrupting event, right? And yeah. it's very common for folks who are managing microbes and their immune system managing microbes to have an immune disrupting event when you have a tragic injury that causes you to now have have an immune system that is focusing on something other than managing the microbes that that um, the system had been managing right now of course now we another thing that we have here of course as you had pointed out is that our medical system is pretty good at treating us when we suffer an acute injury of some sort the problem of course begins to surface when there are there are some manifestations surrounding the treatment of the acute injury that we should be looking at as indications of other things that may be going on, right? So you started to feel anxious during that window of time. You started to have now some emotional um, symptomology. And my question to you is, did you share with your doctors that you were starting to develop symptoms unrelated to the pain in your leg? No, not not really, certainly not in a hospital situation. I was there only for about five days, and then you sort of kicked out, sent home to re sort of recover. 
uh, they don't give you much follow-up as well. I mean, they should have told me to keep my leg down. I ended up getting edema, et cetera, which I didn't know what it was. So thank gosh for good Google, you'd look up that. Um, and, of course, you, you, you're placed in a stressful situation because running your own business at that time, um, it's forced my wife to have to take over running the business with, and with two young kids too. Um, but, no, they they didn't. It wasn't sort of a part of the whole thing, um, that this anxiety and this panic. I, I guess you, you kind of put it down to your illness, put it down to recovery, you put it down to the fact that you are in a lot of pain and, and so forth. And you have got the stress that you have to get yourself back to work as much as you can as well. So you you are rationalizing away the, these developing emotional symptoms based on the pressures of being a dad who had to try to provide for his children and the pressures of being a small business owner and not being able to uh, manage your business without the assistance of your wife who also had to take care of you and take care of you know your, your children. So you were you were rationalizing this as as social pressures and you didn't share the developing uh, emotional symptoms with your doctors. No, I mean you, you, at that point I was never really diagnosed with anything. At that point in time it was really you're recovering from a broken leg. Right. So talk to us about how the symptoms were developing and you you shared with us that you, you went back to work after several months and you found yourself suffering from now more severe neurological symptoms and, and, and it sounds like you were suffering from brain fog. So talk to us about how that was developing. Yeah, like you know, to, be, to be a wedding photographer and a photographer and running your own business, you have to be pretty mentally and physically kind of fit. And I, and I was at the time, you know, and, and I, none of what I was doing was stressful. It was, my, again, my hobby, Turn, you know, and my passion turned into my business. And that's the best business you can have. You, every day you're not actually going to work. You're going to, you're just doing something you absolutely love. And and interesting from before when when my guidance counsellor back in, you know, high school days said, you can, you, you know, you know, be no good with people. I found out that I absolutely loved people and was really great with, with people and loved, you said, photographing weddings, that you know, the happiest day of a couple's lives, really, apart from, you know, because the birth of your kids, of course. And and so that was a real joy for me to do. But when I was coming onto the neurological stuff, I didn't, you don't think of it as neurological things. You just can see the before and the after. Beforehand, I, you know, I knew what I was doing. I knew the equipment that I was able to get together beforehand and plan for the day, know where I was going. Um, remember the names of the people, you know, remember the names of the brides and the grooms and so forth that I was just photographing. And then because on the wedding day, you'd be having to look at your, you have a little cheat sheet and you'd look at, you'd have, I'd have to keep referring to the, the cheat sheet of what the names of the bride was, what the name of the groom was. Um, and, and that wasn't, that wasn't me. Um, and then photographing the wedding, I forget things. I might, lucky I had an assistant, he would handing me the right lens and I, and I was just sort of stumbling a lot afterwards as well. I, I couldn't put it down to anything. It was really quite bizarre. And I, I do go, I went back to my local GP, you know, because they put this all down to, look, you've been off work for five months, you know, this is quite a trauma. It'll just take you some while to get back to it. And I said, I just, I'm just not feeling right at all. I'm, you said forgetting where you're going. And I knew, you know, Melbourne, which is a big you know, city, it's about 4 million people. But I kind of, kind of you drop me anywhere in Melbourne, I would know where I was and how to get home pretty much without a map because of the amount of travel I travelled around Melbourne with. But I, I just lost all of that. But you never put it down as, oh, I've got 
you know, cognitive issues. You know, you just thought there was something, knew something was wrong, but didn't know what. So did your doctor, when you shared these, these um, cognitive issues that you're suffering from, offer you any, any testing? Did, you, did he offer any diagnostic testing? Uh, none whatsoever. None. And the other, look, there was also fatigue happening as well, post-exertional fatigue sort of issues. Like um, I'd, I'd photograph a wedding and I'd come home, you know, happily tired for sure, and sleep well that night. But I would bounce back easily the next day and have either a day off with the kids or family and so forth and enjoy whatever with that. But the next day I'd find out that I'd spend, you know, sleep in to 11 o'clock the next day, have to sleep that afternoon as well, which is quite unusual. Um, so certainly there was these, all these symptoms were just slowly creeping in that I just put, didn't put down. I, again, I knew I wasn't quite right, but I thought maybe I was just needed to recover again longer from the broken leg even though i was physically recovered i could walk again but yeah so so peter you shared with us that you believe that you contracted lyme when you were traveling abroad where was that and how long before your broken leg did you do you believe you contracted uh lyme disease look it's it's really theoretical um i mean in my mid-20s i traveled through europe so that was a possibility, but I've never been sick afterward, after those travels at all, really. Um, so that's, that's unlikely. Um, then, although, you know, as I think after, like yourself, I do a lot of research now and, and, and that can stay within your system for quite some time, but that's unlikely. Um, even though from the days of geology, it's unlikely that I picked it up anywhere then. So, but my honeymoon in 1994, was when I travelled through through Asia. I had we had luckily we had about I guess four to six weeks off and had a lovely honeymoon through a lot of Asia. So that's only when I finally ended up seeing an infectious disease doctor in 2012 that he indicated, look, I you know, and I had testing in I, had, I guess you had testing in 2012, but on to 2019 that he confirmed, look, I, I really do think that you've, you've definitely got Lyme disease um, and it's most likely from your travels in, when you're on your honeymoon. So that was from 1994. So, yeah, 2012, I did get tested in, in, in America and that came back positive. Again, that's 10 years after I had the diagnosis of fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome. So my first diagnosis really from my... It wasn't my local GP who I generally was seeing, because um, even then I mentioned to him, look, my symptoms, and I, again, you do some research, and I said, my symptoms sound like I've got fibromyalgia. And he said to me, no, nah, no, Peter, you don't have that. That's an old woman's disease. I'm like, oh, my gosh. You know, I fitted every description of fibromyalgia. You now there's the pain, uh, the cognitive dysfunction, everything else as well with that. And then, you know, he didn't believe that. So I ended up finding a functional medicine doctor. I didn't really know what they were, but they, she, she was great. She thought outside the box and she sort of agreed with, with me that you know, I could have fibromyalgia. But in Australia, you need a rheumatologist to diagnose you with that. So I had to be referred to a rheumatologist. And they, they sort of only saw him once and he said, look, yep, and he pushed and probed me and, and lastly said, yeah, you've definitely got fibromyalgia. So that's, that's what um, I came up with diagnosis with first. All right, so let's pause there for a second. 
how many different doctors did you see between the time that you broke your leg and you had the immune disrupting event that resulted in you beginning your Lyme symptoms and now you, you uh, coming to a uh, diagnosis of fibromyalgia? Um, so from fibromyalgia, it went into a, another diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome, which, are, which really are on the same kind of spectrum. That's, that's my sort of feeling about this. Yeah, but, but what I'm asking you, Peter, is what was the time, the, the, the timeline between the broken leg and the first diag misdiagnosis of fibro? Um, that was fairly quick. I mean, it was like, I got the broken leg was April, 2003, uh, but December, 2003, I real, I said to my wife, I can't keep going on. I just can't keep photographing weddings anymore. And now, and now most of our business was wedding photography and most of the business was relying on me at that stage. Cause my wife was also a wonderful photographer as well, but she was mostly focusing on because raising our family. Um, but she was still doing some photography with portraits and so forth, but it wasn't a big part of our business. It was mainly wedding photography and mainly myself then, although before we had kids, she was also a wedding photographer too. But um, so from then, by, so by about March or April, I'd got official diagnosis of fibromyalgia, so it wasn't very long, um, but it wasn't through my local GP. I had to sort of seek, you know, advice elsewhere and so forth. The first really hint of it was, actually a naturopath stuck at the back of this sort of natural health food store who kind of, you know, I had a quick chat with them one day when I was buying some, some supplements and they sort of said, look, I think you've got fibromyalgia. You need to follow up on that. So, so I got the diagnosis from a rheumatologist. So in the U.S., fibromyalgia is a disorder, not a disease, right? And it largely is sort of a, a set of symptoms without, uh, without a, I guess, a root cause. Is that the same uh, diagnosis in, um, in Australia? Yeah, it is. It's a syndrome. It is. It's like chronic fatigue syndrome. It's fibromyalgia syndrome. It's, you know, a lot of people do call it a disease, but you're right. It's got no underlying cause i mean you, you've read i've read some books on fibromyalgia so the first time like you i would have got i go went out and bought books and i read all the books I, I searched online i mean again as a kid i was the kid who got the encyclopedias for their birthday and for christmas and so thank gosh for google you know i'd, I'd google everything and i'd try and work out what was going on with me and so you know yeah it is it's, no underlying cause i mean i've read books on fibromyalgia and they said it could be uh, by a trauma um, I'll bring into the conversation about I was very, very fortunate to have a loss of income insurance. So that's, you know, it might be a sideline here, but that's a big thing for people that if you don't have personal income insurance of some description to cover, you know, loss of wages, let's say, I don't know what it's called in America, please go out and get it. You know, you, you cover your house, you cover your car, cover anything else as well, but cover your income. And I was very, very lucky to have had that having my own business. So, but I had to fight really hard with my insurance company to get that. I mean, they, they covered me instantly for the broken leg. But when I had the fibromyalgia, boy, that was, that was a nightmare experience to have to go through that. So it's another sideline to the conversation, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. So, so talk to us about now how your, your symptoms were developing from when you had this first misdiagnosis of fibromyalgia and you now started to see other doctors and started to get other misdiagnoses. You know, the next one, I managed to find just a beautiful, compassionate doctor, a wonderful human being, um, 
and sadly he's passed away now but he was my doctor for 10 years and so eventually found found himself very very lucky to have found him and he specialized in chronic fatigue syndrome so when i saw him he, he did a full history and full background on myself and and he was also researching as a clinician into to chronic fatigue syndrome as well so he really understood it and, and I guess the, the big thing that switched from fibromyalgia to chronic fatigue syndrome, he said I was on, you know, it's on the spectrum between the both because I had the fatigue, which wasn't the main one. Pain was my main symptom. It still is to this day is pain. Um, but the, the chronic fatigue syndrome one was this, the thing that every time I did any exertion, physically or mentally, I'd switch over to just, you know, I, I either couldn't do it or complete it or I'd be, you know, just exhausted mentally and physically or the pain would ramp up so much the next day or the next week or, you know, the next month really. Um, and that's where he said, well, look, I think you've got chronic fatigue syndrome because this post-exertional malaise concept. So that's where the diagnosis was. And that where, where I remained in that that field for 10 years and the things that he did with me which was supplementation and testing and ruling out other conditions I, I think he kept me in a stabilized position where I could function but not function you know that, that so that as it turns out even though you weren't properly diagnosed by this doctor the treatment that he was offering to you or the treatment options he was offering offering to you was helping you to manage the Lyme disease despite not being diagnosed with Lyme absolutely yeah but he was he was brilliant enough that he He'd have, he was seeing like lots of patients. And I was in that 10 to 20% of group of patients that just wasn't getting better. He would get 80% of these, these people better and back to work or back to at least a reasonable quality of life, which was pretty amazing of him. But I was in that 10 to 20% of group of his patients and, and that concerned him. So he was smart enough to, to start investigating, I guess, Lyme disease, you know, with his patient group. So he sent a hundred of his, of his worst patients, which I was one of them. He sent, he organized the bloods, um, got them across to, a, to the United States at Igenex labs across there. Um, and out of, I think, uh, 50 or hundred patients, I can't remember, I think it was a hundred patients actually he'd organized. There's about 90 to 95% of us came back with a positive Lyme disease test, which is pretty astounding. So that took him into another direction with, with this, this group of people. Which okay, so we, we need to pause and explore that in some more detail in a moment, but I, I want to look back with you again. So yep. I just want to get a sense of what all of the symptoms were that you were having. You, 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 talked, about, uh, you talked about anxiety which then started to develop into brain fog and you started to have some neurological symptomology, but you also talked about pain. So what were the pains that you were feeling and what parts of your body and how was the, the pain impacting you? Oh, the, the pain was, I guess, one of the main first symptoms that I know. Well, the panic attacks was the first. That was really bizarre stuff. Um, and that's when one of my first doctors put me on a benzodiazepine which sadly I'm still on, I'm trying to withdraw off today. So that's, that's another sort of sideline of the story too. But yeah, the pain was, was classic, base of skull stuff, shoulders, neck, real body stiffness, which I still get to this day. You know, I, I, it's hard to move, you're hard to get out of the chair. You feel as if you're like a hundred, you know, and I have ever since I was 44. So that, that was a, kind of a major thing. And that's what stopped me from really doing that. I was on, I was, 
after I'd stopped full time with the photography, I still worked for two more years um, with the business, with my wife taking over. We switched the business from doing wedding photography to, to portrait photography. And that was kind of like developing a whole new sort of part of the business. So I still worked part time. My wife took over the main photography and I was the clown and getting the people, you know, which, which I absolutely loved as well because I was still involved. But I was on eight, Panadine, four a day easily just to keep going. So the, so the pain that you were feeling was largely centered in your neck and your, your upper shoulder region, which quite frankly is very much like the pain that my traditional co-host, Matt Sabatello, had suffered during the course of his journey. So this seems to be a, a, a close parallel to Matt's journey. So, so you, you, talked, you talked a lot about the fatigue. Can you talk to us about the fatigue and, and, uh, and distinguish fatigue from, you know, the sort of the tiredness that you would feel before you were on this portion of your journey and how, you know, sometimes maybe people who are tired are trying to uh, describe your fatigue as tiredness when it's an entirely different experience. Yeah, it really, it really is. Nobody, nobody, I mean, so many of your past guests have said the same thing. Nobody gets this until they get it. it it's a hard thing to describe. It's not a, it's not a sleepiness. I know there are people with chronic fatigue syndrome that, that just cannot get out of bed and they'll just have to sleep all the time. Mine was not a sleepiness. I mean, I still only get five, six hours of sleep, disrupted sleep through the night as well. But through the day, it's, it's this complete, your brain just sort of shuts down. Um, you just can't think straight. You can't remember things. You just you lose the train of thought. Even when you're sort of trying to, to type stuff, you're sort of almost dyslexic in, in everything as well. So it's this mixture of brain fog. You, you, you kind of hit a wall. You sort of through the day, you're a little bit fine, you know, balancing everything. You might be able to go shopping and then you think you've got two or three other things you can do and you kind of go, nah, can't do those. I've got to come back home again. I've just got to lie down. Um, and you might not be going to sleep, but you just have, you kind of shut down. So now talk about how you felt about this doctor who had been treating you and keeping you at a sort of a base level of, I guess, of sustainability, but you weren't, you weren't getting better. Um, and he now, he now sort of takes this shot in the dark and he sends over, you know, his hundred worst patients to Igenics, uh, which, you know, we consider the top lab in the U S um, they, they send, they send hundred of you over to Igenics or hundred blood samples over, over to Igenics. And, and you now 95% of you come back positive for Lyme disease. Um, I guess the first question I have for you is how did that make you feel when you finally got a diagnosis? And secondly, um, what do you believe triggered the doctor to take the shot with all of these patients who were not getting better, despite all of the good work that he was doing with you all? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. Um, wish I could wish he was around now. I could I could ask him, but I, I'm not sure what what triggered him about that. I think he's he was an avid researcher himself as well, and I guess through his ruling out process, he would sort of fine tune it down to to what hadn't he looked at really. I mean, he'd look at thyroid issues, adrenal fatigue issues, you know, even heavy metal toxicity, all kinds of things like that. I mean, he was, I guess he was a functional medicine doctor without being described as a functional medicine doctor as well. And I think there was a general consensus in Australia that through the medical profession, even at that time, that, that Lyme disease wasn't particularly in Australia. Um, but he, he, he sort of took a shot in the dark, I guess, really with that, because he wasn't getting these people better. 
Um, and he was quite surprised himself as well, but he ended up having to venture into a new field that he'd never known about before. So he sort of did some quick studies and, and he said, look, you know, the course of treatment is, is, is your classic doxycycline and that's what I guess he would put most people on, which I was put on to begin with. I think, I don't know, it was 200 or 400 milligrams twice a day of doxycycline. And I got really, really sick instantaneously. Every, every symptom that you have just ramps up 10 times. You know, the, the pain, especially for me, just ramped up. And after a week of just being on it, I contacted him back and said, look, I can't handle this. I'm just, I'm already sick. I don't want to get sicker. And of course, him not really fully understanding. He just he said, "Look, just stop, Peter. Just stop taking it." So, so I actually asked you a compound question, and I apologize because I should never Sorry. ask you two questions in one. So let me let me bring it back to the separate <laughs> question. Don't multitask me. <laughs> no, no, you're you're doing you're doing wonderfully. It was really my my poor questioning. So let me let me bring you back to the other question I should have asked you separately, which is. How do you feel when you finally got a diagnosis? You finally now, oh. you go through this long journey where you're misdiagnosed with, well, first, no diagnosis, then you're diagnosed with a disorder, then you finally get diagnosed with a disease, and now you're, you know, you're finally diagnosed with a disease. And I, and I will just get observed parenthetically, you had classic Lyme disease symptoms. So it, you know, it isn't surprising to me that he finally thought, at least with you, that he should be testing you for Lyme. But how did you feel? You got a diagnosis, finally. Yeah. Well, interesting you'd think I'd be excited, but I was actually really in, kind of intrigued. It was sort of like, gee, that's that's quite an interesting. And then, you know, because being an analytical kind of guy, I kind of went, okay, that's taken me in a totally different direction. Here I'd studied all about chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia and what's going on with that. And now I had to switch my thinking to, to this. And I kind of believed it but didn't believe it. So interesting that I didn't believe it, really, you know, because how could I have gotten that, really? I don't remember a tick bite, you know, classic. I mean, so many people just never remember a tick bite. Never was sick at the potential time of a tick bite, if it was 1994, which I never at that particular stage considered being overseas. Um, considering if it was in Australia, I, I never, you know, was don't remember a tick bite at all. Never had rashes, never was really sick instantaneously when I went on holidays anywhere or anything like that. So I was more intrigued and in intrigued so much that 10 months later when he'd sent a whole batch of other patients who hadn't been in the first round, he sent off another batch of bloods to, to Germany, InfectoLab. So he said, look, I'm going to try this again. And, and I was said, look, can I get my bloods tested again? I just, I don't believe this. And he said, sure, look, if you wanted to pay the money, you, you're welcome to do it. So I sent my bloods off again about eight to 10 months later. So that was 2012, the first lot. So in 2013, I got tested again. Lo and behold, I come back positive again from a different lab, a different time, fitting uh, all the criteria from CDC criteria, the Australian overseas criteria, um, and IGENX criteria, everything. I fitted classic you know, Lyme, Borrelia, Babilferi testing. Okay. So you're a scientist. You've always been, you know, had a scientific aptitude. Um, first, tell me what research you did after you got your first positive Lyme disease test from Igenix. I was uh, interesting that I, that my research sort of went off the rails a bit. I, I kind of got lost. I, I really sort of thought, what the heck is this now? You know, what do I, what... I didn't really understand this at all. So I, I, I guess 
and, and sick of also researching and trying to, do, to, to help yourself is also really hard when you're sick. So I, I just trusted my doctor and he said, look, you know, it's, it's really the antibiotics. Um, and I tried that. Um, so on and off, I guess, for a little while, I would be taking some doxycycline. Um, and then uh, it, I just was getting worse. Okay. So Peter, he kept I on saying stop. I'm going to ask you to pause for a second because Debbie's going to take you through that portion of the journey. I just want to focus one more moment with you on the Igenix test. When you got back to the Igenix testing and the test results, did you look at the results themselves? And did you notice anything about the types of um, types of um, either strains or uh, co-infections uh, you were also, if you were also um, uh, sick from? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question because at the time they don't they, they didn't know about what they call co-infections or these other infections. I mean, interesting that that Rickettsia has been known in Australia for years, um, but it was never tested for. Um, other other infections weren't tested for either. I mean, they didn't know about it. I mean, uh, there's there's this. I guess the world is known mostly about Lyme disease, so there is this Lyme dogma known about the, throughout the whole world, I guess, and same within Australia. And as it turns out, it's kind of a bit wrong, not specific. We, we've, as I said, we've definitely got Borrelia. There's definitely something going on. So, but they only tested for one strain. It was the Lyme Borrelia burgdorferi strain. And that did come back positive both in both worlds. Interesting though, in fact, lab, I did start to understand about other infections and so did my doctor. So I did get tested for Babesia as well. And that was borderline. So it wasn't negative and it wasn't fully positive. It was kind of like in the middle. So it was a possible Okay, so you've had this diagnosis. You have an official diagnosis of Lyme. You're talking with this wonderful doctor that you have. He's put you on Doxy. Can you talk to me a little bit more about what that experience is like? You said that you tried it, it was awful. You went off it. Can you, can you tell me, can you elaborate a little bit on that? What, what, what was awful about it? What happened when you went on the Doxy? Well, you, you're already struggling with you know, the symptoms at a, at a level that's, I guess, in hindsight is manageable. It's it's kind of like, yeah, you've, you've got the pain, you've got the fatigue sort of issues, you've got the cognitive issues as well. Um, but you, then you put on the doxycycline, everything just gets ramped up tenfold, uh, especially for me is this pain. Um, it actually put me back into bed. I was very, very fortunate that, that I was pretty much still able to sort of cope with life and, and, and carry on reasonably. Um, I was never completely bed bound and, and I really feel for so many people that, that are that bad. So I, as, as bad and as lucky and lucky as I was, I was never that bad. Um, I was kind of in this medium sort of ground. But each time I went on, on doxycycline or something else that, that triggered the immune system to sort of, I guess, kill off these, these infections, I got just so much worse and it put me back into bed. And so why would you take something that you'd actually feel so much worse on? And, and I guess my doctor not knowing about these Herxheimer reactions, and I didn't know about it at that time, of course, as well, um, he just said, look, let's stop. I don't want to make you any worse. Um, and so he just told people to sort of really stop. He wasn't in fact, he was not an infectious disease doctor. You know, he, he didn't want to harm his patients. He was a, a beautiful person, so he didn't want to hurt people anymore. He does sound like he was compassionate. So 
he tells you to get off of the doxy. What, what were the next steps? What, what was your plan after that? What were you going to do to start addressing, treating your diagnosis? There really, there really wasn't anything else at the time. I mean, and it was on a stage that, that sadly I started to understand that my, also, my doctor too, the, the, this, this beautiful doctor, he also became quite unwell. I didn't know at the time, but I since found out and since his passing found out that he had actually cancer mm. and he's passed from that, which was just so sad for the whole community. He knew him. And he, um, he, he was astounding that, that through all of his own diagnosis, he kept sort of seeing his patients right to the very end. Um, and he tried to get other doctors to take over his practice, but but I knew he was getting quite unwell, and I was very complex patient, and I didn't want to, I guess, burden him as well. So I sort of stepped aside, and I, I guess, I had twelve months in the wilderness without a doctor. I, I sort of said, look, I, I'm not sure if he can really help, and I don't want to kind of burden him with either, with myself as well, being a patient, which is pretty complex too. So I stepped aside to try and find someone else. And it took me more than 12 months to find somebody else. But interesting, this is a very political time. This is this is an interesting time that at the time that also he was also told by the medical profession in Australia, and this is where the politics starts coming in. There were, around Australia, they were sort of letting doctors know, look, there was no Lyme disease in Australia. So it started to become known that this People were being um, tested for this, found out they were having this Lyme disease. Um, and the medical profession said, look, to these doctors, you can't treat people, you know. So they, they said to you, you just can't treat people because Lyme disease doesn't exist in Australia. So he was actually told to stop treating his patients. So he wanted to keep his business going and treat other people. So he stopped actually treating people after about a 12-month period. Okay, that, that leads me to another question. Even if Lyme disease didn't exist in Australia, are doctors forbidden from treating patients in Australia who contract Lyme disease from other places? Yeah, great question, getting into another area of politics here. But um, pretty much, yes. There is a distinction between overseas acquired Lyme disease, and that's outlined in uh, on the um, Department of Health's website. Um, but there is a huge fear now in Australia of doctors treating anybody that's been bitten by a tick. They don't want to get into that area at all. Um, even though rickettsia and also Q fever from, from ticks is officially recognised and is, you know, able to be treated, and, of course, the main sort of treatment is the first-line doxycycline, um, doctors are fearful of treating people with tick-borne disease. They don't want to know about it. And those that have in the past, these wonderful doctors who, I guess, bravely stepped into the field to treat people, have now been sort of um, stopped treating, um, which is just a terrible situation. Because about we've lost about 8 or 10 or 12 doctors around Australia from, from treating people. Others have sort of learned to that and said, look, I'm not going to go in that area at all. So we really don't have officially what's called a Lyme literate medical doctor, LMD in Australia, although because many patients still call them that, which is fine. Um, but officially, we don't really have that. We have infectious disease doctors. You go to them, but, you know, they're very limited in what they know. Okay. Can you tell me what is Q fever? Uh, Q fever is... is 
predominantly Australia, it's more from, from the cattle industry and so forth and sale yachts. It's, so it's an airborne infection, but it's also a tick-borne infection as well. Um, and that's, that's quite prolific, especially in the northern parts of Australia as well. It's, 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 they consider it rare, but it's, it's, again, one of these emerging conditions, sort of like, I guess, Babesia um, and Bartonella and so forth. It is, is another thing which is, is in our ticks. It's been recognised. Um, Bartonella is also in our ticks. Babesia is also in our ticks, but it's not officially recognised as being transferred to humans, but it is. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, going back to your journey a little bit, what year was it that you stopped seeing the doctor, the compassionate doctor? Probably after my second sort of um, testing in 2013, 2014, I suppose. Okay. And then so you did, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so then I sort of entered into the field of, I guess, the, the Lyme world, I suppose, calling it that, but the tick world. Mm -hmm. um, and I started to go online and join Facebook groups with that. Um, so that's where I again started to learn a lot more from patients. You know, so you certainly have to thank the patient community, and I had to understand what Facebook was. I wasn't part of Facebook at all, so I had to get my head around that. And then we, so I went to a, um, we had sort of a, a group in about 2015, where we sort of got together in, in the May time of the year, um, and that's where I met a lot more people face to face. Got to know a bit more about that. Okay. A community is very important, we found, in the, the AlphaGal world also. Um, so around 2015, when you are communicating with other people on Facebook, what are you learning? What are, what are some of the treatments that you're hearing about? What are some of the things that you're considering doing or actually doing at this point to sort of address some, some of your symptoms? Well, that, that's where I found some, some other doctors. I, I learned of Dr. Nicola, I hope it's okay to say some names, I'm not sure, but I, I learned of Dr. Nicola McFadgen, who was just lovely. So I, I ended up having a, a couple of phone conversations with, with her and uh, being, she was Australian, but she, she lives and works in, in America. Um, so she introduced me to, to herbal protocols there, which I didn't understand. So then it was like hudadinia and all of these weird and wonderful herbs and and my science brain couldn't get my head around, around the herbal side of things as well but the same thing i mean i got a number of different sort of potions and concoctions from her and, and i like the, the 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 antibiotics i started taking those too but i again it just ramped up my symptoms so much that i just got sick on those too and so, I, again, I, I don't think that I was very good patient in regards to taking these things for a very, very long time. So I, I, every time I got sick, or maybe I was a wussy bloke, <laughs> no, I didn't want to get worse, so I just stopped taking stuff, um, which was probably the worst thing I could do. But I had no real guidance. There's absolutely no guidance to, to somebody to sort of say, look, you know, start with one drop. You know, and this will, this will, this is the reason why you're getting sick. I think that that's very much lacking. You know, it is a total under, you know, I know now, but then I didn't understand, you know, start in lower doses, take every second day, or, you know, swap them out, or, or this kind of stuff. We, we had no real guidance. You're sort of going on your own. They tell you to take this stuff, you take it, you get a lot worse, and then you go, oh, I don't want to do this. So you just stop. 
something you just said sort of jumped out at me. You said going on your own. And I think that that is a common thread among a lot of the tick-borne illnesses. We find that in alpha-gal too, um, even in some circumstances where we find that we know more than the medical professionals do because we are our own advocates, right? We have to look up to, to learn about these things. Like Rich was saying, he read the you know, 32 line books, you were saying you order books to learn about, we have to be our own advocate and researching these things. And so going on our own, I think is a huge part of the journey for most people who are facing um, a tick-borne illness. Um, so, so going on and off and on your own and with these herbal supplements about how long, how long did you go through that? Um, well, I, I sadly didn't last very, very long with Nicola because I just, I just didn't understand that and I was getting what, and it was hard to sort of, I guess, communicate and, and, and do this from overseas with, with just a telephone sort of conversation. So that you sort of, I guess, through your journey, you do, you stop, you recollect your thoughts. Um, at times you sort of give in as well. I never, I never gave up. I, I could see a difference between giving in and having to rest and having a break from what you're doing to collect your thoughts again, to to giving up. So I've never ever given up, and and that's that's a big distinction for me. So so you sort of recollect your thoughts. You go, where am I going to go to now? And um, interesting, I came across sort of more naturopaths um, in Australia as well. So I started to consider my overall health as well, and I think that's where a lot of people sort of continue down one pathway of just killing infections all the time. And then I started to realize, look you know, what's my overall health life, health is like with the immune system, um, with, with everything else too. So I saw a naturopath and she started to unra unravel what's the hormones like, what's the adrenals like, what's everything else like. So what's the heavy metals like, let's reinvestigate all of that as well. So I started to go back that. The other thing I, I looked into was the genetics of myself. I did a 23andMe test uh, and that was quite interesting to determine what my methylation cycle was. So I started to research that. And then interesting, I went on to a group called Lyme and Genetics on, on the website and had about 30 people in the group. Um, and I started to sort of do some research into that. And the admin of that group um, said, oh, you seem to know a little bit. I didn't know anything, um, but I was posting some things about genetics and Lyme disease and so forth as well. And um, she left the group, but made me the admin of the group. And I had no idea what an admin was at the time. So, <laughs> but, you know, so, so yeah, my next part of the journey in regards to, to treatment was I found a, a combination of a kinesiologist um, and a naturopath. And they worked together by doing muscle testing. And then he would then sort of do uh, lots of um, prescribing with uh, buna herbs, so a mixture of different types of buna herbs and other herbs and supplements as well. And I spent two years on that, that treatment. Um, so she would pick up uh, through, through her muscle testing, which my science brain went, oh, no, I don't really fully believe in this or fully understand this, but you, you got nowhere else to go. So you just sort of accept it and move along with it. Um, and it was quite interesting. So I don't disbelieve it, but I don't fully believe it. You understand, you understand the concept of that. But it was quite interesting. So she picked up, without my telling her what was wrong with me, she did pick up the Borrelia. But she also picked up the Babesia, Bartonella. She picked up a stack of things. Um, 
and then a number of other things. So it was a two-year journey, and that brought me back to a much better level um, with a huge range of different sort of buna herbs, et cetera, as well. I have several questions off of that. First, she said you said that she picked up several several different things. By any chance, did she check for alpha-gal syndrome? No, no. no. Uh, coming to alpha-gal, alpha-gal was actually, I'm not 100% sure, but it was kind of first found in Australia. Um, and that's quite big on the East Coast of um, Australia. And there's actually one organisation that completely covers the alpha-gal meat allergy, anaphylaxis. You know, we, we've got our ticks in Australia, which is big on anaphylaxis. So, um so that's a whole new field, yeah. So I'm across all of that, which you're sort of coming across. But I've never been tested myself for that either. Interesting. We've found that there's just so much crossover between the symptoms of Lyme and alpha-gal. Whenever I have a flare-up, I actually start to wonder if I've got Lyme again. Um, but another thing you said, so in, in this two-year journey where you're trying these, these different herbs and doing the muscle testing, did you find anything that worked? Did you find anything that brought you relief? Anything that made you feel better? Yeah, I was heading back downhill again after leaving my lovely compassionate doctor and sort of found another functional medicine doctor, but he didn't really want to sort of treat, you know, conventionally with with, with the Lyme or, or so forth. Um, interesting at that point, my new doctor did test me for rickettsia, which I came back initially positive for. Um, but then I had to, in Australia, you have to get a second test of positive. But my second test was negative. So they actually ruled it out um, because they said the first test is always a false positive, um, which now knowing having a third test, which was positive again just recently 2019 that's a real crock <laughs> absolutely people get missed um, because the testing is just atrocious so that again that's another story in testing um, but but yeah definitely the two years um, brought me to a level where where I was able to get back to um, being reasonably stable um, and still unwell but but functional much, much better function. What was the next step there? Did you, so you did that for two years. That brought you to 2019 about, is that what you said? Um, about was, what year was that, that you were the ending, wrapping up those two years of sort of stabilizing a little bit? Yeah, it's probably 2016, 2018, I guess. Um, and through that, she, she sort of went, you know, you've got, you know, seven million friggin', you know, bacteria and infections <laughs> through you. Everything else has gone wrong with you and so forth, which my science brain is going, look, there's no way that if this is a tick, could they transfer all of this kind of species? So she would break it down. And I'm going, look, I, I don't believe the fact that, you know, scientifically that a tick could transfer all of the kind of uh, infections. Like she's picked up all the Asian species and all the um, European species and all the U USA species, the Borrelia and so forth. So definitely I kind of go, yeah, she's probably vibrationally wise. She can pick up Borrelia. You can pick up the Babesia and so forth as well. So, you know, that, that's a possibility for sure. And interesting that it did overlap some of my sort of things. But it, she didn't test me for rickettsia, so she never picked it up. Um, mm. But now she's got little kits and vials for rickettsia, which is interesting. So 
Um, by the time I'd finished it, when she'd muscle tested me, she said, you're clear of everything. And I did feel better, without a doubt. You know, there was a, a, probably a 30 40% improvement from where I was to, to where I'd finished up over that two-year period. Okay. So did you go back at that point to just trying to live your life the way you were prior to your Lyme diagnosis? What did your life look like after you'd made that 30 to 40% improvement? Um, and, and then what happened? Did, did you, did you relapse when you stopped the herbs? Did you, what, what happened? Yeah, that's, that's good because I did, I did actually about six months later, I started to relapse again. Um, and that's where I thought, should I go back on these herbs? Um, you know, you, you just sort of get sick of trying all these things all the time. Um, so I did relapse. And that's where I went back to my functional medicine doctor a bit more. And I said, look, what's going on? I mean, I I'm, was, was kind of better. He knew a bit about herbs, but it wasn't his, his sort of specialty. And he brought to the life, this is starting to take another sort of little turn as well, which is quite interesting. He sort of indicated to me, said, look, he's got, a, again, a couple of other of his patients that had this really rare parasite. And I hadn't investigated parasites at all. I had done a couple of stool testing for parasites and everything came back negative. So you kind of think, you know, testing, negative, rule it out, you know, because I'm very analytical. If it's not in a test, then I don't have it which now I know is not actually true, of course, with a lot of things. But he said, look, again, some of your symptoms really do overlap with this other rare parasite called nathostomiasis, spelt with a, a G at <laughs> the start of it, nathostomiasis. The other name for it is called river blindness. Um, so quite a scary kind of um, parasite, very, very tiny little nematode. And so, again, that took me off in another little area. So he sent me off to infectious disease specialist in, in, um, in Melbourne. And he said, because I started to understand quite a lot about condition, he, he sort of warned me, he said, look, Peter, I know you know a lot about all this stuff, but look, when you go to just act dumb, just go in there and sort of say, look, I, I'm sick, these are my symptoms. If I can offer any advice, um, to others who might listen to the podcast. Often when we present to a doctor, we always look quite normal. We, we, we don't look sick. We Most of us look pretty well, especially if we're out. I mean, when we're not out, of course, that's when we're unwell and probably can look unwell, but that's when we're bedbound. We don't get out. So people don't see you stand. But so when we get out and see the doctor, we generally look fairly good. My suggestion is, and I've had to learn this as well, take photographs at the times when you feel terrible. Take them in. When you're sort of middle of the night, waking up, you're 4 a.m., you've got the massive headaches, you've got ice packs on, you look like death, take a photograph of yourself. Um, it may not be the best photograph, it's certainly not. Um, when you've got those, when you have got other rashes, and I did get other rashes, but they weren't typical Lyme rashes, they weren't typical Rickettsia rashes, they were more mast cell activation reaction, as, and that's another area that I had to learn about as well. Um, take photographs. If, you, if you're shaking, and there's times when I have Parkinson's-like shake as well, so that, especially after exertion, so I would take videos of a hand shaking, holding a glass of water or something, so I took those into to this infectious disease doctor and I would just say, look, I've got chronic fatigue, diagnosed chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, 
I have travelled overseas, so tell them the history of that, in, in, especially in Australia, but I used to work as a, you know, tell the whole history, but show them these photographs. Um, I'll bring up another point, which through admitting various groups in Australia as well now, women, it's terrible, but women have a much, much harder time, i found and realised, than, than guys when they go in to see a medical pr practitioner. So I think I was treated much better than when, you know, women go in to see their practitioner as well. And that's just a really bad, bad situation. I'm fascinated by that comment. <laughs> I want to go back. I, what did the doctor, when you, when you brought in photographs and videos of, of your symptoms and, and what was happening, what did the doctor say? I think it really, really took me seriously. He, he, just, he didn't just listen to me. He could actually see these photographs that I generally was sick. Um, and he, he did a, a gamut of tests. He did the Australian Lyme testing as well. Um, he did the Rickettsia testing, repeated that. He did all the Ross, the Rift Ross River virus testing, the Barmer Forest virus testing, which is, you know, unique to Australia, I guess. Um, the Q fever, he just ran a gamut of testing. When I showed him the shaking, he did heavy metal testing of mercury and other sort of things as well. So, you know, I think at the time there was another about eight, ten bottles of blood drawn out of me. Um, and the one, I guess, the great thing about Australia too is we have this, I guess, this socialist medical system. Um, we have a Medicare system where all of that, if you go to a public health system, which I did in that case, other times it wasn't, um, it was all fully covered. So I didn't have to pay for him and I didn't have to pay for all these tests. Um, and at the time, initially, too, I was really sent to him for this nathostomias. And he said, look, let's get let's get all this other testing out of the way first, you know, because this nathostomias is a really, really rare parasite. And so we did all the other testing and the rickettsia came back positive again. But all the other testing was negative. So, and this is 2019 again now. So he um, said, look, we need to test again for your um, rickettsia. And I said, oh, oh, by the way, I actually, this is my second visit. Oh, by the way, I actually did get tested back in 2017, I think it was. And I showed him the positive test then. And then also negative test. Mm -hmm. And he goes, oh, oh okay, well, and then I so then pulled out the overseas testing because I'd played, I don't know what's going on, the first yeah. visit. Because um, I really want, I guess a lot of times you start again from scratch too each time you see a new person. You, you don't want to um, hit them with things you had in the past because they can overlook stuff that way as well. Um, so it's good to also get fresh eyes on things. So I did say, look, I did get some testing, but there's a few doctors that don't really believe in overseas testing, which a lot of them don't. And I showed him the IgeNX testing and I showed him the, the testing from Infecto Lab in Germany. And he sort of said, look, I don't really like the IgeNX testing, which is identical to the Infecto Lab testing. And he said, I like, I, I like the Infecto Lab tests. And he said, look, it looks like they generally are positive. You, you do have Lyme disease, most likely from your travels overseas. And that's where he was able to then put me back onto doxycycline again. So I did then a full two months, actually it took me probably two to three months of doing the doxycycline and I ended up 
stopping it a little bit throughout, but I pushed my way through it. But I must admit that this time round, because I'd worked on my biting and I was much healthier, I was able to handle the doxycycline much better this time round. And when you say much healthier, do you attribute any of that to, you know, the the, herb, the herbs, the herbal treatments, the, the natural doctors you were seeing, or do you think it was just the state of your Lyme or, or what do you attribute that to that, that you were healthier, that you could, that you could tolerate the doxy this time around? Yeah, I think it was, uh... Definitely, I think it was the, the two years of doing all the herbs and doing everything as well, plus working on, on other factors. And I think this is, if other, again, uh, people take away from that is we tend to sort of like, oh, I've got Lyme disease, I've got an infection, and we start killing everything off. And your body's just not capable of handling that. And I've only realised it takes you years to understand this through your own journey, that your body's kind of got to be healthy to be able to kill stuff. And, and that's where I really was. And everybody was sort of chucking stuff to kill it. And then, again, doing the genetic testing, I found out that I had two detox pathways which were blocked. And you've got three de detox pathways genetically. So that's where I started to also do other aspects of my health journey, which means looking at insulin, looking at leptin resistance, um, looking at the adrenals, looking at cortisol, um, lowering your overall stress levels throughout the day as well trying you know hard for me because i'm a very a-type personality i've always been on the go um, love life love science love you know just getting involved with everything so it's very hard for me to sort of calm down a lot um so you kind of need to get your body healthy so understanding your overall health as well i think is very important and working on that perhaps before you, you start actually even killing off stuff um, and also my realization that Look, you're going to get worse, Peter. You know, you're going to take a doctor cycle and you're going to get worse. So it was okay for me to miss a day or stop and then recover a little bit and then start it back up again rather than go full bore it all the time. But also, I guess, psychologically, I was prepared to be much worse, knowing that there was an end to it as well or a hopeful end or a hopeful improvement. Um, and I, so I went through it and I did get through the, the two months, but it took me a little bit longer than two months. And then I was very lucky that um, I saw the doctor after one month and I said, look, I'm still feeling pretty terrible. And he had to get permission from the medical authorities, even himself being infected disease doctor, and ring up and say, look, I, I need to put this guy on another whole month of, of doxycycline. And they approved it. But that's really interesting. They only really give three to four weeks again. So, again, Australia is based uh, on, an, on the IDSA guidelines. You know, it's, it's even an overseas one. And no matter how long you've had it as well. I mean, if I've had it since 1994, they still consider only three to four weeks as treatment and then you're cured, which is, I know, is just absolutely astounding now. And I was lucky to get an actual another month of that. And after that, he said, well, you're still unwell, but you're cured. And he did use that terminology. And I said, but I still feel terrible. That's when he did the testing for the nathostomiasis parasite. And, I, and he said, look, Peter, this will cost you. And I mean, look, I've spent so much money on, on, on my whole health over the last, you know, 10, 12, 18 years. Go for it. And he said, it will cost you $100. <laughs> 
which wow that's that is what i've spent from overseas testing you know in australia here it's it is thousands and thousands of dollars i said that's nothing here's a hundred dollars and so i had to wait till he had another batch of people that he would test over so there's only one lab in the world that actually tests for this nathostomiasis um, parasite and it's a blood test and it's a western blot test and that's in um, bangkok so that went across and I waited again another month or so before that came back. And I had to ask him, oh, have you sent it off? No, I haven't. And he said, look, I don't think you've got it. You haven't got it. He did the pre-marker tests and none of my pre-markers were, were high. And none of, that's the other thing too. So many of us, and I've heard it from listening to your wonderful past talk. So many people said, most of my normal tests are normal. And that's the same with me. Most of your normal blood tests are absolutely normal. So, he didn't expect me to be positive, but lo and behold, I came back strong positive for this nathostomiasis parasite. So I then ended up getting, in the end, five months of antiparasitics, which normally there's only a month, but he was kind enough to understand that it could have taken a lot longer. And he was pretty scared, more scared about the parasite than he was about the rickettsia or the Lyme disease. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I was curious about what the treatment was for that in five months. So it was, let me see if I get the, if I've got the timing right, one month after finishing your doxy. So, so you're, are you feeling better in that period of time? You said you tolerated it a whole lot better. You're feeling better. You're being tested for this really nasty parasite. That, do I have that correct? Yeah, I wasn't really feeling better. That's, okay. that's what I was telling him. I wasn't, okay. I still was pretty symptomatic. Some things had switched. I mean, I think people know in this journey, your symptoms just chop and change and, and come in and out and switch. And it, it's, it's, it's such an unpredictable illness. You, you, you don't know what's going to happen from hour to hour, day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year with all of this sort of stuff. It's hard to explain. But no, I wasn't really feeling that much better. And that's, I guess, why he sort of said, well, look, let's investigate this nathostomias parasite. Okay. So the treatment for that and the standard sort of treatment, it's on the CDC guidelines as well, is it's you have one month of albendazole and then you have the next month of this controversial kind of, you know, parasite treatment at the moment, ivermectin. So this is all pre this pandemic times. You you put me you put me on one month of albendazole, um, and then one month of ivermectin. Interesting that through all of this, I didn't feel worse or I didn't really feel better. I, I just kind of handled it. Um, I did nothing much changed. And then the next month, I had so I still was feeling unwell, but not better, but not worse. And then the Next month after the uh, ivermectin, it was albendazole. And then another finishing month, he said, the, the ivermectin again. And he said, well, look, you should be cured of that. I said, look, I, again, I'm still feeling pretty horrible. And he, so you know, I kind of stepped away from, from his treatment thing. I, I came back um, a couple of months later and he, I kind of convinced him, put me on another month of ivermectin. Again, I didn't feel worse. I didn't feel much better. Okay. So but he said, in all in all, he said, you should be cured of your Lyme disease, your rickettsia, because it's the same treatment, and you should be cured of the, um, of the nathostomiasis infection okay. as well. But you're not feeling better at that point? 
No. What did you decide to do? Did you decide to seek out any more treatment? Well, at the moment, I'm, I'm sort of in limbo. I'm not really treating the infections that much. I'm look going back to, um, and all through the stage, of course, you, you change your diet. You, you, you do all the good things about trying to eat a better quality of life as well. So, so yes, all through this stage, is I've, I've cut out things like gluten and, um, and eating more of a ketogenic, Mediterranean, you know, paleo kind of diet. Um, it was beforehand you could eat anything and get away with it, you know, whereas now you've got to be so much more careful of your diet. Um, I don't think I've got alpha cal coming on to, to your sort of things because I can eat meat and don't seem to get reactions afterwards, but I've never officially been tested for it, but I don't think I do have that. Um, and it's not something that many people are aware of to be tested for, really. Um, that's our experience here in the States. It's, there's not a whole lot of awareness of it yet, but the, the range of symptoms is, is broad. And so, um, you know, from very minor reactions or not reacting at all, all the way up to anaphylaxis, you know, and, yeah. and, and we've actually heard it been called, you know, the, in any time syndrome versus an every time syndrome, meaning sometimes you don't react at all. Even Candace and I, who react pretty wildly to it, sometimes we get a little exposure and don't have a reaction. And then sometimes we'll get the most minor exposure, exposure from sugar or, um, you know, carrageenan, something random, and it'll knock us down, you know, send us to the emergency room. We're using our EpiPens, all that. I, I'm very curious about... I'm very curious about what might still be causing, you know, you to be feeling bad. So you're, you're not, uh, and I, I should probably hand it back over to Rich at this point <laughs> to talk about, you know, what you're doing right now. Um, but um, thank you for sharing that part of your journey. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So, so um, Peter, let's, let's talk about, let's talk about the, you know, the, this portion of your, of your, of your journey, the, the, the journey of achievement. And I'd like you to look back at all of the treatments that you've done. And I'm wondering if there's anything you would do differently now that you have a, uh, an opportunity to look back. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing has been absolute trial and error. It's been stumbling in the dark. I mean, especially when you get diagnoses of fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome, where you're kind of told there's nothing you can do. Um, that's pretty deflating, you know. Um, I was very fortunate to get actually the, the, the doctor that I referred to before, this compassionate doctor who could think outside the box and saying, look, there are things you can do. You, there is a ruling kind of out process, which many doctors don't. They either don't diagnose you with chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia, which is just as bad as getting the diagnosis as, as well. I mean, the great thing about getting the diagnosis is that it makes you slow down. It makes you stop trying to push through things. Um, and I think that's extremely important for people to understand is, and that's what I did for two years. Um, I think in, in, definitely in hindsight, I wouldn't have tried to continue working <laughs> for two years as much as that would have put extra pressure on my, my wife. Um, yeah, I'd tried to continue through. And I thought you could just get through this. Um, and I think 
hearing from other people as well, they try to do that as well. Um, not knowing what I had as well, you sort of think, oh, you, you, you'll get over it. You'll, you'll, just, you'll just get better. I mean, like our cells, in 12 months, all of our cells in our body are completely changed. But then why would you remain sick for 18 years? That's astounding. I mean, are you replicating terrible cells in your body all the time or is there something else going out? Has, you know, in hindsight, are these, has these infections? And it's not just tick infections as well. I mean, I, I was tested for mycoplasma and I've had those um, too, but not, everybody ignored these other infections because they kind of go, well, everybody's got, everybody's got those. But if your immune system is so compromised, you can't, you can't fight those off. So it's knowing now that is this the immune system plays a huge role in, in all of that. So so people can get bitten by ticks, could get infected, but could not may not get an illness. Um, and that's where people take it not as seriously. But there are people with perhaps a compromised immune system. And you referred to that before. When I broke my leg, that really compromised my whole immune system. And I went downhill. But it's only looking back now that I realise that that's what happened. I mean, I can't go back and not break my leg. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could, but, you know, I probably could have got sick, um, but that was really a big triggering moment, the broken leg. So let's talk about the coachability of, of uh, Peter as a patient. And um, do, you feel, do you feel that perhaps your journey may have been a different journey if you were maybe a little bit more coachable? So, for example, when you met with Dr. Uh, or you were doing some work with Dr. Desharme or, you know, formerly Dr. Uh, McFadden, uh, and, and you were and you were doing some of the work that you were doing with her. Do you think that perhaps you could have been a little bit more coachable and, and perhaps if you had followed direction a little bit more closely from that doctor, that maybe the results might have been different? Look, yeah, probably. I mean, the, the doctor diagnosed me didn't really understand this field at all. So God bless him for doing, you know, what he did the best that he could. You know, I, I'm, regardless, I mean, every it, all these doctors that we do see are human. You know, they're going to make mistakes, and especially if they're not educated about that as well. Um, so he did the best he could with the knowledge that he had, which was what was referring to the standard guidelines. That's kind of coming to the big picture of stuff that's where it's failing us as, as a whole patient community these guidelines have become political i know in america based on the idsa guidelines or the ILADS guidelines and that kind of stuff and it's a it's a real dichotomy it, it, they're so so different and and you know it's almost like a belief system who do you believe in to sort of treat you um Sorry, but coming back to, to what, what did you say again? I'm sorry. Like one of the things that I'm always concerned about when I'm looking at the pattern. So we, we've interviewed almost 250 people now who have had you know, varying levels of success in, um, in overcoming their, um, their Lyme disease journey. And, and, we, and we, we're starting to see some, some very definite patterns develop with the way that people interact with their doctors. And what we're seeing is that people at either extreme in the sort of doctor-patient relationship, meaning on one extreme, we have people that just do whatever their doctor tells them to do, and they're re relying entirely on the medical system. Then we have this other extreme, which is an understandable extreme, especially because there's so much gaslighting and there's so much uh, betrayal felt by the medical system failing you. But we, we have a whole group of people who say, doctors are terrible. I don't want to work with doctors. They're never going to make me better. 
And what we see is when we have people at either end of the spectrum, either one of the extremes, they generally don't have as good an outcome, right? And, and, and what, what I'm sort of asking you is because, you know, you've sort of, you're, you're having this very difficult relationship with doctors, um, you know, the medical system has betrayed you, um, you know, do you believe that perhaps if you had found a mid ground where you had a more healthy relationship with a doctor where you're the boss, doctors working from you working for you and the two of you develop a relationship where there are some frameworks that the doctor can offer to you that you can use to help yourself to heal and that the two of you have a more healthy sort of balanced relationship rather than either entirely relying on the doctor or not being coachable and not listening to any of the advice that the doctor is giving to you yeah, I think I've ended up sort of by default kind of in a middle ground. I've, I've, I've gone to, to all the sort of um, practitioners, and I think all the practitioners can be quite helpful for you. I think, you, I think everybody needs to build a team of, of doctors around you. I mean, you've got a multi-systemic, you know, condition. It's not just infections that are playing a role in, in you. So I think having naturopaths, um, as well as, as, as mainstream doctors. I think what's lacking in Australia is, is the fact that doctors don't really understand the seriousness that can, can come from being bitten by ticks and other vectors. Um, plus there's this political thing that's happening over top of everything as well, whereby there's this, this dogma in Australia that Lyme disease does not exist here. And, and scientifically that is actually correct at this point in time that we have not found the Lyme disease in the ticks. So, but it's bigger than that. I mean, I think also worldwide, I'm also seeing people moving away from just Lyme disease as well, even though that's the most known and the most marketed, I guess. There is all of these other things that can happen with these cells, Debbie and, and Candice, it's, there's this alpha-gal stuff, there's anaphylaxis stuff, there's, uh, there's Bartonella. In Australia, there's rickettsia and, and Q fever, and that's where I guess this lack of knowledge or this, this political dogma that's overseen everything as well with, um, with this Lyme disease, they missed the rickettsia. I mean, if, if they thought that I might have been bitten by a tick from my history of either overseas travel or even Australian travel, they should have considered rickettsia at least, but they didn't for many years. So that's a real oversight with that. And a, and a general practitioner should be allowed to test for that and treat for that. But again, when they have this sort of testing, you've got to get two in the road because we think, you know, consider that the first testing is a false positive. And then if you don't get a second positive test, which you still could be have this infection, and because the test is based again on antibodies, that's where the, the whole testing fails you as well. Because if your body, especially if they don't get it in an acute phase, if they only get it at this chronic stage, which is what I'm at, you don't produce antibodies. And so, therefore, the, you know, it's not, it's not that testing is bad. The testing is just the wrong test. It's, it, you know, it's an antibody test and your body's not producing antibodies. So it doesn't prove or disprove that you don't have an infection. Well, so let's unwrap that. So, of course, one of the biggest problems we have in the Lyme disease community is Lyme is a disease without a consistent definition. In fact, we, we interviewed... Um, Dr. Alan McDonald, who said, we really should be divorcing ourselves from the term Lyme, because there are so many different definitions to Lyme disease that we have a lot of different 
policies that are put in place because we don't have a consistent definition. So for example, if you were to ask Dr. Bill Rawls to define Lyme disease, he would say to you, it's a multi-germ infection, right? He, would, he, would, he calls it a polymicrobial infection causing multi-organ um, uh, multi-organ infection, right? So, so uh, then, then, then we've interviewed uh, we we interviewed Dr. Leslie Douglas, for example, at uh, DNA Connections. And when I was arguing that Lyme disease was a uh, you know a polymicrobial infection, she said to me, "No, Richard, it is a disease from Borrelia burgdorferi, right?" And then, and then, and then we've had you know we've had other you know people describe Lyme disease with a different type of definition than the, than the two you know, we've just offered. So, you know, if we're going to use Dr. Rawls's uh, definition of Lyme disease, then even if you didn't have Borrelia, you still have Lyme disease because you could have Q, Q fever, you could have uh, Bartonella, you could, you could have, um, you could have Urachetsia, right? So that's still Lyme disease. And, you know, and, and, and you, you, you had the nematodes, right? Um, you, you could have alpha-gal. I mean, you could have this whole, you know, whole bunch of stuff spit into you. And, you know, some of the research has demonstrated that a tick could harbor 200 different microbes that could be spit into you, 200. And we're only testing for like seven or eight of them to begin with. Yeah. Now that's, that's a, a brilliant conversation to have and, and great thing that you've raised. And that's exactly, you've got to, you either separate the science and the science is very specific. And that's, I guess, where I, my thinking is, you've got to separate that science. So, to me, Lyme is a series of Borrelia species that's classified as Lyme. And you've got the Borrelia burgdorferi, you've got the, the Americans, the, the, the European strains, you've got a few other strains that they start now finding it. And so that's where you look at the genus of the species. You unravel the scientific name and the nomenclature, you know, if that's the right term, I can't remember. But that's, you unravel all of that. And I think you kind of do need to, to take it down a more scientific pathway because if you call it a multisystemic disease, that's fine. Um, like that's what Dr. Horowitz, I mean, he's, I'm going to follow him. He's brilliant at that. That's where he came up with the MCDS model. Right. And, and that's, that's terrific. But sort of saying, look, you've really got a multisystemic, you know, illness, which is not only of infections, but it's also individual about the person. What is really going on with you? Um, you know, what, what is, do you have insulin resistance, for example? Do you have all these other holistic things that are going wrong with you as well, as well as the infections on top of that, which is making you sick? So you've got to look beyond just the infections as well. That's, that's what I'm sort of thinking when I, you know, look back at my understanding now to, to then before. So can you trust one doctor? Probably not, because they don't have the, the full gamut of experience and understanding of, of everything that's involved holistically with everything as well. So I would be more down the terms of, um, I guess, the science people, uh, the Dr. McDonald. Really, you've got to look at, at Lyme disease is the, the Borrelia burgdorferi or the European strains or Asian strains or other strains that they determine. You've got to go down to the genus, the species of each one of them. But I do understand in the community, why, especially overseas, but it's also by osmosis into Australia, they're calling it Lyme as well, because it was first called 
without knowing what was going on, they, they, they were calling it Lyme in Australia back in the 1990s or even earlier. I mean, we've got documents from the Queensland Department of Health and, and elsewhere where they called it Lyme disease, but really they picked up a Borrelia without knowing the full genus of the species of it. So with, without doubt, we have got a Borrelia species in Australia. They've picked up in 1965 a Queensland, uh, a Borrelia queenslandica, they called it but they haven't proven that it's harmful to humans. Um, we've picked up other Borrelia species just recently as well. Um, but again, they haven't um, gone down and, and looked at the species of, of those Borrelia. But you kind of go, if you've got the Borrelia, can we not make the leap that it could potentially be harmful to humans? Why aren't we treating it without not knowing what the pathogen is? So we're at this sticking point in Australia where oh, we don't know what it is, therefore we're not treating. We're at that point of absolutely saying, look, you, you test negative for rickettsia, you test negative for Q fever, if you're lucky to get those tests, by the way. Uh, we've tested you for Lyme disease in Australia with, with Australian testing, which is I don't think is as good as the overseas testing, and that's come back negative. Um, you're still sick, you have the symptoms of Lyme disease, like it's a Lyme-like illness. There's even patients that have got the, 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 the bullseye rash, these little kids that have got a bullseye rash. But they say, look, there's no Lyme disease in Australia, so we're not going to treat you. And that's, that's just shameful. It really, it, really it is shameful. But another thing I think is bizarre about your system, and again, I don't want to be overly critical of, of, a, of another country system, but... You know, why is the assumption built in that first you have to have two positive tests before you are diagnosed? And why is the assumption that if you have a negative test, that it that the first test is a false positive rather than the second test being a false negative? Yeah, yeah. Intriguing, isn't it? It doesn't make scientific rationality at all. It really doesn't. It just, I guess what it does is it shows that they also not even, um, you know, positive with the testing. I mean, if you if you go to HIV testing, it's the same kind of testing. In Australia, they, they, I think it's level two testing of, of this Western blot testing or, or antibody testing, whereas in um, HIV testing is at least 95, 98% accurate, which it should be. I mean, you wouldn't like to sort of go in, it's 50-50, toss of a coin, um, you know, have I got to have a night? I might as well toss a coin and determine this. I mean, that's terrible. But we're still only at this level two sort of level of antibody testing around the world. I mean, I've followed so many people from, from America, from Canada, from um, Europe, from the UK as well. And it seems to be this worldwide issue that this, this testing is at best a flip of a coin. And I've heard it all the time. I mean, past people in your podcast have said the same thing as well. So, so you, you take a test that's at best the flip of a coin, and if, if, the, if the coin doesn't flip head twice, you can't get treated in Australia. Yeah, well, for rickettsia, I mean, it depends on the practitioner you see. I mean, I know that there's been patients who've seen a doctor, and you get a test of rickettsia positively, and they will give you the doxycycle. Then there's others more in the lines of the infectious disease doctors who've been trained to saying, look, you know, and the laboratories have a lot of influence as well. They sort of, you know, the doctor doesn't know, they're in the laboratory and the laboratory sort of says, look, first one's positive. And you sort of become positive to all of the strains of rickettsia, which is pretty unlikely. Um, and then they said, look, that's, 
because you've reacted to all the strains, we think that's a false positive, which doesn't say much about the test if they can't even rely on their own testing themselves. You know, Peter, another thing I'll say, for, for all the evils of the CDC in the US, uh, they, you know, they have, they have very strongly uh, stated that a diagnosis for Lyme disease is a clinical diagnosis and that testing is only a piece of that test. And even with a negative test, a doctor has the legal authority to clinically diagnose you with Lyme disease despite the testing. So, um, you know, despite all the evils of that, that entity here in the US, I mean, we're in a much better place than you are in Australia. Yeah, look, definitely. We, no, ours is the reverse. We absolutely have to have a pathology-based test. It has, you, even if you get a positive Lyme disease test in Australia, and we're talking about a Lyme Borrelia burgdorferi, and they do test for three now, uh, the two European strains as well. If Even if you come back positive with that, it's instantly written off as, and if you've never left the country um, and you don't, you know, never been to an endemic carrier overseas, then they'll discount that as being a false positive, which and so you probably won't get treatment. And that's why in the past there's been doctors who said, look, I kind of, you know, I will give you treatment. They've been found out uh, and they've been sort of wrapped under the knuckles and then sort of either said, look, okay, I can't treat anymore um, or that even sterner sort of things put on them as well. And I, I guess that's happened around the world too. I mean, I've heard it, you know, in the United States where people, where doctors have been under the pump with that with their You've been really generous with us, um, and and I am so fascinated by this topic in particular. I could spend a whole podcast uh, discussing yeah. this issue with you, but we are going to need to pivot now to this to the transformation portion of our podcast. And I'd like you to talk to us about the beautiful elements of this journey. What have you learned about yourself, and what have you learned that you don't think you would have known about yourself had you not gone on this journey? For me, it's definitely been an understanding of people who become unwell. Um, and I don't think you, you do understand it until you've actually become sick yourself. So I've now got a, a wonderful community of, of people that, that I admin a couple of uh, Facebook groups. Um, and I've got to really enjoy and really love the people that are in those groups as well and really understand them as well. So it's good to be surrounded by people who can just get you um, and you've learned a lot from them. So, you know, this journey is still continuing. I'm still unwell, but I'm certainly better than I have been in the past. It'll go up and down. Um, so really I've got to distinguish between being empathetic and being compassionate. I've learned the difference between those two words. So compassion has driven me to, to do try and do things for other people as well as best as I could. So, you know, I'm not constantly sharing posts. Um, so I have two groups. One's called Conquering Chronic Illness, and that was one of the first groups that I kind of inadvertently sort of got into. And then the other group is TICNA, which is Tick-Borne Illness Community Network Australia. Um, and that was formed with a group of friends as well. So um, like what you guys had formed, we formed TICNA. And that was about public education, about trying to get awareness across to the general public about, you know, the really dangers that ticks can, can be and other vectors as well. So, so for me, it's about turning the, the compassion I have for the people to do something um, as best as I can, I guess. Talk to us about how your, um, your transformation into a more compassionate human has helped you on your healing journey. Um, 
yeah, I guess coming, it's, it's being caught, I guess, hopefully. <laughs> I mean, when, when you get these infections, they can really affect you emotionally as well. I remember when the kids were little, I had very, very short temper. Um, and you didn't realise that was coming from. It's only in hindsight now that you look at the, the, the what a kind of at times a nasty sort of person that you you were and you you blame yourself and you, you come in and out of that very, very quickly. You get these anger episodes, these emotional episodes as well. You, you'd end up sort of sitting by yourself and just sort of crying and what what's going on here? I, don't know. I mean, you didn't realise the impact of these infections have on you emotionally too. Um, you also look at your relationship with your own partner um, and you kind of go, why is not my partner sort of helped me too? And that happens a lot in this. You either, many people end up in divorce and any, any people end up, um, you know, in, in terrible situations with their relationship because it, it can really play havoc on them too. And that's another big area. Um, and I spent a number of years in counselling to try and come to terms with my own illness and condition what I could do to to help myself get through this this journey too. So that's a that's again a podcast in itself. Is talking about the emotional journey with all of this that we we tend to go through, and you tend to blame yourself. And but all of this is boiled down to bad luck. You, you didn't you didn't go out and purposely um, you know do this to yourself. You're bitten by a tick. You probably didn't even know about it, and um, you got sick from it. So if you can try and avoid that bad luck. So talk to us about how you've turned your bad luck into something positive and, and how that has resulted in you um, working with folks in the uh, chronic illness community and specifically uh, the work that you're doing with uh, Tikna. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've always been a person that's been very driven, um, you know, run your own business. You have to be pretty organized and, and, um, and as I've always served others, like in regards to, especially when I became a photographer, you know, photographing people's weddings and everything else as well. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. I thoroughly enjoyed people. So coming back to that, I, I just couldn't see myself, even though I was unwell, sitting around and doing nothing was just boring for me. I, you know, in times, there's definitely times you can't do anything, but the times when you can, you know, it was always learning and everything. So so there's some friends behind the scenes. We're sort of starting to talk. Could we do something? And I looked at around what everybody else was doing, and we've got some great organisations in, in Australia that, had, that have been doing this before that I even come onto the scene. And I have to do a call out to, you know, the Lyme Disease Association of Australia. And, and coming back to what you were saying before, they, they consider this as like what Dr Bill Rawls says. They sort of say this is a generic term. And I kind of look at it going, no, it's, it's a scientific term. So it's only in the terminology that we sort of differ in that way. But we, they've got some amazing people there that have done some wonderful things to try and get us there. We had a set an inquiry in 2016. Um, sadly, at this point, it hasn't really delivered what we really want in Australia. It's actually probably made things worse. You know, again, that's a lot longer in the podcast to sort of talk about that. Um, but... Yeah, it's it's so we set up Tickner because, you know, we we also you know by osmosis we we have a Lyme awareness in May each year as well. Uh, we certainly did before the pandemic. It's I think that's put a lot of hold on things too. So we said, look, what's not really been done twenty four seven is is uh, and three sixty five days of the year is actually education of the public. So we set up um, with a few friends. We set up 
who are either sick themselves or who are carers of people who are sick. Um, and there's only a very, very small group of people. And we set up Tickborne Illness Community Network Australia. And we ended up with that name. It was going to be called Vecna, which was vector-borne illness. But we thought nobody understands what a vector is. Um, so we stuck with the word tick. And I didn't want it to be Lyme. Being a science-based person, there's more to this than just Lyme. And I think overseas, even I think they're finding that, you know, we've got to consider so many more things it's Borrelia, there's Babesi, there's Bartonella, and these are dangerous infections in themselves. You know, on their own, you, you could just get Bartonella. You can get Bartonella from a spider, and that's where Dr. Stephen Phillips, when I was following his journey as well. I mean, that that's, you know, you need to bring awareness about all of these pathogens, again, not coming from just ticks too, some other vectors as well. And they're very underrated um, of what they can do. So that's where we formed Solom Tickner, and that's what we've done. We had... Um, so we got off to a pretty good start, really. Within 12 months, we sort of got the name, we got the business cards going, we got logos done, we got incorporated body. We didn't become a charity. That's quite a big thing to sort of do. Um, but we managed to get 40,000 brochures printed um, and delivered through our network of patients, um, delivered around Australia, which was great. And that, was, that only took 18 months or so. And then... We had another wonderful person, and I have to call out with her, Sharia from TikTok Travelling. And prior to my meeting her through the community, she was delivering brochures for the Carl McManus Foundation, who also sort of behind the scenes are doing amazing things too. Um, and that, she was delivering brochures for the Carl McManus Foundation around Australia. So she was a pensioner. She had a caravan. A uh, car was full of all of these stickers all over the car and caravan. She was travelling on her own money uh, as a pensioner, um, just delivering brochures to people, doing talks in caravan parks, putting brochures in um, pharmacies, going into doctors and hospitals and putting out these brochures. And I sort of called out the Colin Rannis Foundation, do you want to get together? Do you want to sort of up update these sort of brochures? Um, at the time, they said, look, no, but I sort of said, look, I think that could be a little bit more sort of public friendly a bit, a bit science-based a bit. Um, still great, but we sort of decided to um, make them a little bit more public friendly and uh, produced her own brochures, and she started delivering those around Australia as well and then through our community. So that's why I wanted to evolve the community that, that so many people are so sick. They don't know what to do. Or, or, so by involving them, by a simple process of saying, look, in your area, and, and Melbourne where I live, we're not in the big tick endemic area. In fact, to be honest, I've never seen a, a tick in real life. <laughs> so, um, but many people, of course, live in endemic areas. The east coast of Australia is being the west coast in, in pockets of there as well, all around the sort of seaboard area of Australia is, is huge for ticks. So when they live in that area, they can get these brochures, we post them out to them and they can put them in the local chemist shops or all around. So they can do, they can feel they're contributing to doing something. That is wonderful. So now again, in the spirit of, uh, of thanking you for being so generous, I'm going to ask you for one more piece of help uh, as we wind down the podcast. And the piece of help I, I need to ask you for is, if God forbid, after this podcast, your wife has been so generous and so helpful to you on your journey, she came into your room and she showed you that she was being bitten by a tick. What would you recommend that she do so she wouldn't have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey? Yeah, interesting. I guess the first thing is don't panic. You were talking about that before. Everybody 
tends to panic um, straight off. So um, that would be the first thing. But certainly if, you, if it's still attached, you know, we remove the tick properly. Um, so many don't. They, they do panic. They flick the thing off and it can cause more problems than it's, than it's worth. It brings up a real issue in Australia, that, that especially with the alpha gal people, they said to remove a tick in Australia um, for, for that organisation is you need to freeze this tick. So you use actually a freezing spray and they've done a little bit of research into that, especially to try and if you have an anaphylactic reaction. Um, there are this other community, myself included, saying, look, could that actually make things worse and force any infections that are inside the tick? Um, tick scuts back into you as well. So we're still of the opinion to, if you're not having an anaphylactic reaction or not having serious allergies at the time, to remove the tick very safely with a fine pair of tweezers. Um, yeah, in Australia, you sort of, if you sort of sort of eaten by a tick, if you try and go after a doctor, because mostly they'll say, look, don't worry about it. But I guess you need to be aware of that it potentially could be dangerous and to keep an eye on symptoms. Um, and then, you know, if there's any rash that does occur, definitely take photographs of those, those rash and then get yourself off to a doctor as well. So it's really a symptom-based diagnosis. It's, it's, it's really a hard one in Australia to say is, is, you know, if you went off to, to a doctor straight away, I doubt, especially in Melbourne, it's because it's, we're not an endemic area, it probably would ignore you. But I would keep persisting, definitely keep persisting if you've got problems. Peter Owen, I can't thank you enough for, for taking time out of your uh, busy life in the land down under to share your beautiful story with the Tick Boot Camp community. Thank you very, very much for having us. It was, it was good. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Tick Boot Camp interview with our guest, Peter Owen. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Peter, please visit the website of TICNA, the Tick-Borne Illness Community of Australia. And if you want more information about AlphaGal, or to just reach out to me and Candace, please follow us on Instagram at 2AlphaGals, our website, 2AlphaGals.com, or check out our original episode with Tick Bootcamp, episode 194. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note, we appreciate any input or improvements you'd like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, on social media, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews you share with us. Thank you for listening.